Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Go ahead and turn there. There's two extremes that I've lived much of my Christian life with when it comes to the presence of God. The presence of God. Two extremes. Um, I think on the one hand, I like... Many, if not all of us, have dealt in my own way with feeling distant from God. Distant from God. This would probably characterize the, the beginning years of my walk with Christ, of course, sprinkled throughout, comes and goes. That feeling of, God, are you there? Distant from him. And there's this, been this mindset, I know that I'm not the only one who's encountered this, that you hear others talking about how close their walk is with Christ, and you immediately go, what's wrong with me? Clearly, God can be close to people, but it's not really working out with me right now. Maybe that describes you. That's definitely described me at certain points. Distance from his presence on the one hand. And there's the second kind that I've encountered, and the second kind, I don't really have a specific word for it, but it goes something like this. Out of a dislike for the first Hating the distance of God, being willing to do whatever it takes, even drawing outside of the lines to, to seek and find the presence of God. I've definitely fallen, fallen or, or, or been in that camp, going to, going to the conference, hearing that megachurch pastor speak, many of the names that you know that are well known, that there's a good chance I, I'd likely have heard them speak live, going down to that prayer room in Kansas City to see if something will happen there. You know, I, I've done all, a lot of those kinds of things. Listen to the people who have, have said, we don't need, just believe in Jesus, we think you can do the stuff um, in, in Acts and 1 Corinthians and things like that. So I've, in the past, found myself gravitated towards that, wanting to go, wanting to go in, because I want the presence of God. And, and I found myself as I sought the presence of the Lord, feeling close to him, you felt, you felt that, that sense of, I don't know if it's warmth or, or, or whatever, but just closeness to the Lord. Something I have found when that, when that moment comes is that the moment I begin, if I'm worshiping through songs, reading God's word, or hearing a sermon or anything else, have an encounter, talking with somebody, and I find myself going, I sense the presence of the Lord, and then I focus on that feeling, something happens. It's fleeting, it fades away. It's like the moment you, you, you begin to focus on it, it fades. It's, you start asking questions, what is, was it, is it me? Was it God? And you find yourself in doubt. I know what it's like to manufacture emotions to try to feel close to the Lord. Been there. But I will tell you this, that when you have the real thing, the very presence of God, you sense that close to you. You find yourself going, I could not have brought this upon myself by my own strength. It's here, I can't keep it. And so let me just in humility say thank you, Lord. You just have to let it be. As evangelicals, we do a lot of talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but we don't do nearly as much of a job talking about what do you do when you feel like that God who you're close with, you're not very, you don't feel very close to him, the distance of the Lord. We don't talk about that as much. 
the sense of his presence just is not constant, I think, for honest. It's just not always there. You may be sitting there right now going, the songs did nothing for me this morning. Didn't do nothing, right? And you're just here. There's seasons where we can be in lockstep with the Lord. There's seasons where we can be, we can feel like we're in the desert. And this is why I love the Psalms. It's another reason why I love the Psalms, because there's times where David deals with the same thing too. He acknowledges that reality. And so the question that I want to ask this morning as we get into Psalm 27, I want to ask this question. How do you have a biblical perspective on the presence of God? Is it a feeling? Is it something more? How do you know it when you have it? All, all those kinds of things that we've raised here. Let's approach Psalm 27, seeking the Lord, as we see David who saw the presence of God and the presence of his own enemies. And he declared that the Lord is his light and salvation. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, you have seen me on this journey and this is just another moment on that journey of walking in step with you. Lord, out of the overflow of what we look at here, I'm not even asking that we would feel closer to the presence of God, your presence, but that we would believe in the reality, regardless of our circumstances or how we feel, the true reality that doesn't change. Take us to the truth this morning, Lord, and then lead us to action. Amen. King David plays a prominent role in the Bible. We've, we've mentioned him at certain points, but we haven't really gone deeper into his profile. He is known famously as being the man after God's own heart. We know this, right? He has a lot of great stories. When you think of them, perhaps these three come to mind. It's probably three the most well-known ones. The, the first one would be that David is the one who was anointed king, when it seemed like all of his other brothers were better candidates and Samuel shows up to anoint the coming king, passes over the old eldest, goes all the way down the list, comes to David, and then you have those famous words from the prophet, the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I've heard these words perhaps before. You have that, then you have the moment where David really steps up, and that's an account that has been so allegorized into my big problems that are in front of me that I can overcome. You've seen the way the story of David and Goliath has been used in popular culture. But in the true account, David is the one who shows up to the battlefield or behind the battlefield. He shows up to Israel's ranks. He sees that Goliath is taunting God and Israel. And David then says to Goliath after getting a few stones of his own, he, before that, if you read the account, tries to put on Saul's armor. It, it just doesn't fit well. And so he does what he knows how to do. And he comes up to Goliath and he says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. I will tell you, the first time I actually read my Bible, and I moved on from Sunday school stories that I heard in church, I went, they didn't mention that part about what happens after he gets them here. 
And he says that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. By the way, we're not focusing on 1 Samuel 16 and 17. Who's the hero of the story of David and Goliath? Is it David? No, it's the Lord. The Lord is the one who does it through David. And so David's profile rises up. Saul's descends. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his ten thousands, right? And so as he has conquest after conquest, the one thing, though, he can't have a conquest over is over his own lust. And so the third story, you're probably familiar with this, is that after he's become king, um, he sees Bathsheba, he takes Bathsheba onto, in, into his own home, and he sleeps with another man's wife, she gets pregnant, and then, and then he tries to kill off her husband, Uriah, to cover it all up and move on. Consequences are severe if you read 2 Samuel 11 through 19. What happens afterwards is destruction comes to the house of David. His, his sons start going after one another. His son Absalom tries to lead, lead a coup, and he ends up getting killed off. And David, David deals with so much. Puts himself through a lot, too. It's a complicated figure. And when I read through the accounts of his life in Samuel and in Chronicles, if I'm really paying attention, I have found myself, after I've read the story, you, know, you get it through the first few times you read it, but then you go deeper and go, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. What, would it ha- what kind of angst would you have been dealing with and all the highs and lows that he dealt with? Some like really low lows. What would you do, like with David, in the presence of Saul, God sends a harmful spirit, a harmful spirit from the Lord, comes upon Saul, lets you work that one out, and then he throws a spear at David, but misses him when he's trying to pin him to the wall. How, what would you do in the aftermath there? How would you be shaking? When he left his dear friend Jonathan and he becomes a fugitive, a man on the run, there's a, there's a account that just doesn't get talked about nearly enough. He shows up to the king of Gath, and when he's there, he has nothing. He's desperate. He's a fugitive. He shows up to the king of Gath on his front doorstep. And what does he do? He has no options left, so he starts acting like a crazy person. Starts acting like a crazy person. The account says, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Like, try to find a contemporary preaching application out of that one right there, Right? He has no options. He acts, starts acting crazy because he doesn't have anything else left to do. We've mentioned the turmoil that he experiences in his family, the coup by Absalom to overtake him, people vying for his position. And if there's ever a time where that phrase, heavy is the head that wears the crown, man, it really applies to David with the weight that was upon him. As one does, last week I was watching an interview of Lyndon Johnson, um, president in the 1960s, and I was watching an interview that he gave 10 days before he died. And in the interview, he's talking about the civil rights movement, uh, he's talking about the war in Vietnam, and it keeps going between um, Lyndon Johnson, I think it was 1973, with his, with his, his, his white mullet that he had kind of let, let go out, and comparing that to in the, in the earlier and mid-60s when he's giving speeches and he's all put together. Have you ever looked at those pictures 
uh, of presidents at the beginning of their tenure. I think we have a picture. Do we have a picture? Yes, no, maybe so. Yes, there it is. Pictures of presidents before or at the start and then a little bit more gray hair afterwards. Franklin Roosevelt looked the worst, so we had to make sure to get him up there. And this is how I think of David, to be in his shoes, all the things that he must have dealt with that took a physical toll on him. What kept him going through it? I think the answer is revealed in the first verse. Look with me in verse of chapter 27 of Psalms. Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear the war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And so this first move that David makes here when he's talking about his firm foundation, I think when you look at the chaos that he went through and then you look at what he says here, I think it's a reminder that we can be fearlessly confident when we rely on God who is our light and salvation, our light and our salvation. Regardless of circumstances, David calls out and says, this is who my God is for me. He's light. Think of John 1, 4 through 5. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It exposes darkness. Maybe you think of, you think of, of David with a big spotlight around him. There's nothing from the darkness that can come in to the light that is all around him. The Lord is his salvation. David may get some gray hairs along the way, some battle scars. Perhaps even some of his enemies are cannibals. It was interesting when you look at verse 2 there. Is that figurative or is that literal? No doubt he dealt with some crazy people in his time. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh... David, for David, dread is not a good word to describe him. Confidence is. He has confidence regardless of his circumstances that God is his light and salvation. So those words, dread, turmoil, angst, hopelessness, fearfulness. These words, I think every Christian at some point deals with them. More for some than others. Those words, dread, turmoil, angst, hopelessness, and fearfulness, describe you this morning. I want you to know that you're not a second-class Christian here. But I do also want you to know that those words don't have to define your permanent reality. Your permanent reality is grounded, grounded like for, for David, in who God is for us. My question is, do you believe that? Do you believe these words that are on the page are true and jump off into your life? So he, David gives this ground of his fearlessness and his confidence of the Lord. He then makes another move and he takes the reader, you and I, deeper into his heart as he talks about his greatest desire. Let's keep going here. Verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. 
He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. And so for David and for us, our greatest desire is that we would rejoice in being that hope of being eternally present in the Lord, to dwell in his presence forever. You see that desire described in those words, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. If you look further at the words there, you see house and temple and tent. And you go, okay, what's all that about? And the answer is that if you're in David's time, you have to think of the presence of God localized. God is in a particular place that you can go. You can go to the tabernacle or you can go to the temple. And you can see the Lord or you can encounter the Lord there. And so David says, I just want to be there. You guys go on ahead. Leave, leave me be. If I'm here for all of my days to be right where the Lord is, I mean, I don't want to be anywhere else. That's what he says. And, and I just ask, does, again, does that describe you and I really? A desire to be in the presence of the Lord, to be willing to do whatever it takes to say yes to whatever he asks of us, to do everything, to give up everything, so that we would be in his presence. I would just say if the desire to dwell in God's presence doesn't excite your heart now, you've heard me say this before, if the desire to dwell in God's presence is not a reality for you now, why in the world would it be a, a desire that you would have for all eternity? If you don't enjoy being God's presence right now, why? that's a long time for eternity. Do you desire? That's what heaven's all about. Is that what you truly desire? The church, friends, it's just that, it's just that gathering of that dress rehearsal before that main event. And you read about that, that description in Revelation 4. That's the image that always comes to my mind. Or in Revelation 4, there's 24 elders, 24 thrones, before the one seated on the throne, there's four beasts that are there. There is a throne that the Lord is seated upon. There's a rainbow that goes out from there. There's a sea like crystal, and the way John tries to describe it. There's millions of angels. There'll be millions of saints. If you're in our Reformation class this morning, perhaps some of those unsung heroes will be standing right next to you on that day. And we'll be shouting with one voice, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and are created. Or again, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I've heard some of you talk about 7-Eleven worship songs, seven words saying 11 times ad nauseum over and over and over again. But I'll tell you, if there was ever a 7-Eleven song I would want to sing, it would be these words right here in the book of Revelation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Man, I, I look forward to that day. Paul talks about this day too. You read about it in 1 Corinthians 12. The context is spiritual gifts, and Paul's saying, these are going to pass away, but let me tell you what's not going to pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, though, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What a day that when everything that we've been seeking after in Christ, Lord willing for you, it's in Christ, and then when you see him face to face, you realize that he has known you fully, entirely, the whole time. And so the diagnostic question I have for you. You may believe the right things. You may believe the right things to get through the membership process here at Bethesda. But if your heart doesn't desire and long for the realities that I just described, for all eternity, you have a problem. And so I would ask you this, why keep showing up to the events, singing the songs, listen to the guy talk, do that religious thing or other, when there's no desire for a Savior who is your light to behold? That's my question to confront you with this morning. Do you really desire His presence? Do you desire to rejoice, leaving even to singing, singing to dwell in the presence of our God? I'd ask you, don't move past that question if you haven't dealt with it. And so David speaks of his confidence in God, his light and salvation. He makes that move and he starts speaking about his desire to be in the presence of God. But then he takes us even deeper. And this is my favorite part of the whole passage. He takes us even deeper into a prayer that he prays to the Lord. In fact, we could have spent our whole time just on verses 7 through 12. Let's read it together. Hear, O Lord, when I cry. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Hide not in your face. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries for the false witnesses, there's false witnesses, and they have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I think there's enough right here, friends, in this passage to appropriate from David's prayer that we should apply in our lives. Uh, let, let me give you just a few observations that I see here. The first thing is the, the raw honesty. We haven't answered the question, as we've done in other passages, what kind of psalm this is. I think there's a few scholars that I've read who point out what you may have noticed here. The first part of the psalm is, it's like a royal psalm declaring who God is for the king. It's a royal psalm. But in verse 7, there's a clear shift. There's a shift to, to a lament where David's like, okay, Lord, you see what I'm going through? Now would be a really good time to show up. I really need you right now. A lament. Tripper Longman defines this word lament. What is a lament? The lament genre is primarily defined by its mood, the feel. You can feel that low feeling immediately when you read it. The lament is the psalmist's cry when he, in great distress, he has nowhere to turn to but God. It's clear. David has nowhere to turn to but the Lord. And so I love that honesty. God already knows his heart, and so David is just acknowledging it and bringing it before him. And I just want to ask again, as you look at this, do you have that same kind of raw, 
open and honest dialogue when you speak with the Lord? Or do you find yourself just, just stuck on empty platitudes like saying traveling mercies and a hedge of protection whenever you pray over something, right? Do you have those empty phrases that you use that you know doesn't describe what's really in your heart? Look what David's doing right here and see how he gets raw, open, honest. Better to say, Lord, things are not good and I, I really need you to show up right now. The Lord already knows that that's in your heart. You might as well say it to him. Second thing I see here. There's a reliance on trusting God would be who he said he would be. Lord, I need you to be who you said you would be. He says, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. If you know your Bible, you read Deuteronomy, and at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31 says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is, goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so what David is doing right here, he knows his Bible. And he's saying, Lord, I need you to keep your promises. I need you to stay true to your nature. It's almost like he's reminding God. He's reminding God. Remember how you said you would be that for me? I need you to be that for me. If you take more time, friends, to dwell on this, verse 9 and 10 parallel, verse 4 and 5, where in verse 4 and 5 he's describing how he just wants to be in the presence of the Lord, and now he's saying, Lord, don't forsake me. You heard what my desire is. Please don't forsake me. You see how he calls on God to be his salvation. I need you to save me right now. You remember how I said in verse 1, you're my light and salvation. I, I really need you to be that for me right now. That's an honest prayer. I will tell you from a pastoral perspective, I know that you know this, but I'm just acknowledging this. There are times when I find myself speaking with someone who is pouring out their heart and they're saying, this is the horrific circumstance that I'm going through and I don't know how to get out of it. I had three conversations like that over just the last week. And... When I find myself in those circumstances, this may surprise you, I don't always have the answer. I don't always know what to say in response. I don't always have that great piece of wisdom to give people. But I do know that I can call on God's promises and lean on his nature and pray. I've done that several times just recently. Here's a good question to ask when you pray. Who is God in light of my circumstance? When you're praying with somebody else or you're with somebody else and they go, this is what I'm going through, you then pray for that person and you say, okay, Lord, who are you in light of my circumstances? Let me, let me show you how this works. You pray this out. Are you in a depression or do you know someone who's in a depression or dealing with incredible anxiousness? Call out to God the good counselor. Are you or someone you know experiencing a health crisis? Often we pray for these things. Call out to the great physician. Is it a marriage that is falling apart? Call out to the one who holds all things together. Is there a broken relationship that needs mending? Cry out to the God of redemption. Is there confusion on your direction in life? Say, God, you're provident. Be provident for me. 
Are you in a crisis over your job? You don't know how you're going to put food on the table? Then say, Lord, you're my provider and cry out to him. Is your mind fogged up because of the existential questions that, just, that you just cannot get past? Then cry out to the one who is the truth. Do you live in perpetual shame because of your past sin? Then lean on his forgiveness. Does your soul ache because of the lost years that you might have wasted? Then call on him who restores have you experienced wrongdoing? Then rely on his justice. Have you, you have crippling loneliness? Call out to the one who is all present at all times. Are your enemies around you? Plead like David. For God to be your deliverer. Is darkness all around you? Then run straight into the arms of the father of lights. Are you frustrated that you haven't grown in character in the areas that you know you should have and your spouse has been telling you about those things? To remind yourself of God's enduring, loving kindness and patience towards you. Do you find yourself yet lost yet again in the same direction? How did I get here? Then you call out to the one who has already left the 99 sheep and he is coming after you. Have you been forsaken by others? And turn to the one who was forsaken for you, has been forsaken by you, and has promised you that he will never leave you or forsake you. Quote scripture to yourself, remind yourself of those words. He will never leave you or forsake you. I want you to know, Christian, God was not playing around when he made you and gave you access by the blood of his son. So that you would be able to boldly approach the throne room of grace and cry out to him and say, Lord, I need you to show up and be true to your nature. You say that you don't change your promises are, are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, that I need you to answer them for me right now. I know there's somebody in here who is dealing with, I know a lot of the stories that are going on in here. I would encourage you, cry out on the basis of his nature and his promises for you. They're not gonna change. And release it to him who is able, and then let the grace flow. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, and our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach out, the end of our hoarded resources, the Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So give to him all that you need to give to him. In the presence of him that is not based on how you feel or your circumstances, circumstances, but it's on the basis of who he said he would be. I wish I could go back to my 18-year-old self and tell myself that. Stop trying to manufacture feelings. Stupid. Trust in the truth of what God said he would be for you, Aaron, and to let him do all according to his nature, by grace. I think that's the posture we should have. Here's how the posture we should have when we're then done praying. 13, verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And so after you're done praying and saying, Lord, show up, then believe in him. Wait for him. And be strong and courageous. Believe. Oh, man. 
my email's on the back if you want to email after me after what I'm going to say here. What's the difference between a culture warrior and a Christian? The answer is a divine hope. For the culture warrior who's always being tossed and turned by whatever the news cycle is over the last week, his hope lies in what is right in front of him. For the Christian, he can look beyond that. He can look, deal with those realities, but he has a greater hope, a divine hope. Maybe you've, you've thought to ask me this question, Aaron, why don't you do, deal with more cultural events? Haven't you seen what's been happening in the last week? Why don't you address those things from the pulpits? Don't you know that we had so-called Pride Month over the last month? Don't you have an opinion on the Supreme Court and all of those decisions that were just handed down this week? Student loans, affirmative action, same-sex marriage, all those things. Latest protest, all that stuff that's happening in France. Have you been keeping up with things, let alone Ukraine and, and the war there? Don't you see all of those things, Aaron? Yes, I do see those things. I just mentioned them, so that's how I know. That's how I want you to know that I know. So I'm glad that you brought those things up. I want you to know that there's no doubt going to be times when wisdom dictates that we deal with some things directly. But our general posture when we gather in here is to say the things that we're not going to be reminded of by the secularism that is outside of, this, uh, uh, of these four walls when we gather. I want us to be reminded of the biggest things, to be reminded of Paul's words when he says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Not that you'd be so heavenly minded you're of no earthly value, but that you'd be so heavenly minded you would have the right perspective. And when you're the person who has the right perspective because you've, you've exegeted and interpreted God's word, you will then be equipped if you've interpreted God's word to interpret the culture. If you're only interpreting the culture without God's word, you're in trouble, my friend. Interpret the word so you can interpret the culture. And so my, my prayer for you, my prayer for all of us, prayer, my prayer, for, prayer for myself, is I would do like David. I would seek, I would gaze, I would look upon the goodness of God. And so I would be so caught up in the light of my Savior that I don't even flinch when the darkness comes around me. I want you to be so caught up in who he is and what he's doing so that when you deal with some of these things out there or in your own life, you're equipped and you're ready. This is what we do when we gather here. And so where does your hope lie? Where does your confidence lie? Is it in your surroundings? I will promise you, you will be disappointed. Is it in yourself? You will be disappointed. But if it's in Christ... Let us reorient our confidence around him and his power and believe, focus on him. It's the first word, believe. But then we wait. Ian Bounds, in his book on prayer, said, patience has its perfect work in the school of delay. In some instances, delay is the most essential part of the prayer. I, I just like how Christianly that is. Like, you, the Christian perspective is that you can take something that, is, that you don't desire, delay, and you can turn that into a blessing. Hey, it makes you more patience. It's an essential part of the patience. It's an essential part of the prayer. Wes and I have talked about this, and something I've said to Wes is that I don't know how you can be an atheist and be a farmer at the same time. Um, I, I don't know how you could deal with that. The longer that I'm here, the more I understand how important the weather is and why we talk about it so much. I just thought, do people have nothing to do that? They talk about the weather so much here, right? 
But I realize the reason we talk about the weather so much is because that for so many of us, our livelihood is directly tied to weather and whether it's going to rain or not. I can't help myself, I gotta, tell, I gotta say this. We were praying as a prayer team a, a few weeks ago and it started raining and as we we're praying for, for rain and which is so great to see all of my friends just very excited. It's it a great moment. And so how would you confront the anxiousness in your own heart, whether you're a farmer or somebody else? If you don't have the Lord, look at poor Wes, he has no hair left, right? And Wes has said to me, I already deal with that, and I am a Christian. We deal with anxiety, even as Christians, right? And so whether you're in agriculture or whether you're like David with your enemies around you, you've got a crisis or a potential one or something that is just causing you grief, place your belief in the Lord and let him do his work. Wait upon him and surrender it to him. And when you've believed and when you've waited, then be strong and courageous, friend. Trust that his promises don't change for you. Trust that his nature was the same yesterday and it'll be the same when the sun rises tomorrow. He is our light and our salvation, our overcomer, our strong tower, the one who overcame the grave in our sin. And we fear no one else because we fear him already. We fear him Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.